Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. You know, since I, I moved back east, and you know, I've been missing Mexican food. You know, because I lived in LA for so long, and uh, and and they have good sushi in LA, but they also have good sushi in the Philadelphia area. But I've been seeing something lately that's really driving me up the wall, and, and it makes no sense. They have something called sushi burritos, and I don't understand why you need a sushi burrito because sushi by itself is amazing. And if you think about it, if you get a roll, that's sort of like a burrito, or if you get it wrapped up. And burritos are just an amazing food. I mean, I know the back east doesn't have the good Mexican food like L.A., but it's just really been bothering me that I've been sitting there going out and seeing sushi burritos, and I refuse to try it, and it might be good. But anyway, people email me at cooper at coopertalk.net, and if you had a sushi burrito, tell me what you think of it, because I really want to know, because maybe I'll get it. Anyway, we have a great show today. My uh, my guest, you know, back when I was, you know, in high school, late high school, I saw him on MTV when he was in the Bad Haircut 100. This morning, I listened to his new CD. I call it a CD. Some people call it an album. We'll ask him what he calls it because he's the artist. Uh, called Woodland Echoes, and it was great. It had a great sound, 12 songs. Nice, just nice listening. You know, and, and you know me, I don't listen to a lot of new music, but when I get good guests who have the background that I love, you listen to it and you love it. And my guest is Nick Haywood. How you doing, Nick? Good. How are you? you ever had a sushi burrito? Um, I was thinking about that actually. Um, I don't think I have. I'm normally if I go for a burrito, I want it. I want the meat cooked. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but um, you know, I don't really eat a lot of meat, really. So I try and avoid it as much as possible, um, so that I can find something that I really do like. I'm still, I'm still kind of experimenting with my diet. I must admit. Well, now, now, you know, you grew up in England, so now, did did you grow up, I mean, because the food in England, you know, a lot of people don't know, like, curry is very popular in England. What was your diet as a kid? Did you did you eat healthy? Because you were always, you know, you looked like you were in shape in the early videos, and you look, I see you now, you look like you're in great <laughs> shape. I mean, what, what what was your eating habits as a kid? It was a 60s diet, so it was beans on toast, baked beans from a tin. It was chips, it was spaghetti bolognese, um, and every Friday the family would just throw in everything from the fridge <laughs> with a bunch of rice and call it a hash. Um, and I used to tell my mates that I had had hash at the weekends and they thought I was very modern because they thought it was the whole family was smoking drugs. <laughs> so, uh, But they, a lot of my mates liked my family anyway because they were quite progressive, I think. So my dad loved jazz, my mum loved pop music and she drove a little white um, Spitfire car which is kind of a little old Triumph Spitfire and a Morris Minor and they were quite quite eccentric and we used to live across the road from uh, this woman that used to do a TV program called How in, in the UK and it was a bunch of people that got on TV very much like Blue Peter and they would just answer kids questions about how things worked and how things happened and I used to be transfixed to this program and um, she used to give me a lift to school in uh, her old car, because we all had old cars, it seems. But it was a d done thing then. I don't think anybody in our street had new cars. No, Nobody would even had cars. I mean, my street was completely carless, <laughs> like Carlos Santana. <laughs> no. so, I mean, that... <laughs> 
Now you said you said your 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 father listened to jazz and your mom listened to pop. Did you get into music at a young age? I mean, when did you know you wanted to be a singer? I know you went into, I believe, you went to school for art and photography. I may be wrong. But when did you sit there and start really listening to music and saying, I, I want to do this? Um, well, music was always around the house. I mean, even I went to see Count Basie, Ray Charles, and Oscar Peterson on one bill at Hammersmith Odeon with my father. So that was my first taste of music. And then it was always, always in the car. It was everywhere. You couldn't really avoid it. So it was just there. And we used to go to the Bull's Head, which was a pub in Barnes, which was along the river just up from the centre of London, and watch jazz every weekend. And uh, so it being there, and my brother was the main influence, because there was music continually pouring out of his bedroom. It was it was oozing like strawberry jam out of a donut. It was... Uh, and it was present-day music, so it was things that I'd never, I'd just think, what is that? You know, I would I'd hear Hold Your Head Up High by Argent and think, wow, why is, why is that person singing Hold Your Head Up High? And then you'd hear Jeepster by Mark Bowden, T-Rex, and you'd think, what's a Jeepster? And I still wasn't really into music, as in I wasn't buying it yet, but I was really influenced by it and thought, it sounds like a magical kingdom in there. And, uh, okay, I've seen jazz, and I've seen what goes on there. Right, okay, it's people on stage, and it's bands and stuff. But this stuff coming out of my brother's bedroom sounded sort of uh, ethereal, like uh, otherworldly. And uh, and then the time that I really, really thought I can do this was when punk came out. And I thought, I could do this. And my brother had a band, and they'd just become a punk band. And they used to rehearse, because we used to live above a pub, well, I, I used to live above the pub. I mean, my parents ran the pub, so uh, I had sort of lived above it. And they, they'd leave up their equipment, this, the band. And uh, I just used to go in there and play, muck about. And one day, one day Pete was in there, that's my brother, and his band, Unorthodox, who were a punk band. And uh, they were playing, and I just jumped up there and started screaming like I thought punk would sound. I just I was being just... <laughs> expressive and expressing myself to know what was going on and I got a bit of a, a taste for it you know like a like a shark <laughs> for taste of blood um, and then from that day it was a, a case of well at this then so I mean, this is a, quite a long long story really but you know that was the time that was the moment when punk came out and then all the influences then you know you, I might have thought I was going to be punk but actually the music that I did wasn't it was a bit like that, but it was. That's why I really liked all the new wave bands that came, like Talking Heads and XTC, and all the bands experimenting after after punk, because punk just opened up the door to a bunch of fantastic music. It must have been great being over there, because you know, I mean, uh, you're like a year or two older than me, and I, you know, it's funny. My roommate from college came over and brought all this music we had not heard of, you know, to the States. He was from mm. Hong Kong. And it must have been great as someone who, you know, just being around the punk scene when, you know, here we had, like, it wasn't really a punk scene, like, people. I mean, you had the Ramones, but that was New York. But mm. you, you didn't really have the punk scene. It must, have been, it must have been a great energy. It must have been a great time to be, you know, trying to get into music because, as you said, even the new wave bands, it must have been a tremendous time to be young and, and learning this, this industry. It, it was. It was... Uh cultural wave that was sweeping the whole country as well. Like you said, it wasn't just in New York 
you know, it, I mean, it, it, you, you had to really know where to go, didn't you, if, if you're in America. But this was really sweeping the whole country. And, uh, oh, I, I think I might have lost you. No, I'm here. Oh, oh okay. Um, sorry. Um, so, I, yeah, it was sweeping the whole country. So, But I was in London. I was a commercial artist. I just got a, I'd left school quite early and got this job in a place called a House of Wizard, which was, which they did uh, things like Hovis ads and uh, Coca-Cola stuff and other other ads. And I was a junior there, and that's when punk was happening. So I, I could leave work and then go and see the Ramones at the Marquee if I wanted to. And I did. And uh, I used to, there was a magazine called Sniffing Glue, which was on the corner just where I used to work. So I had to pop in there, and I think I bought one of the first punk singles that came out just because I was there. And uh, punk actually evolved from where I'd come from, uh, which was South London and Beckenham. So I got to see quite a few early bands in the Chislehurst Caves, which was a place where, where and lots of early forms of punk were just kind of being expressive there. So um, so I, I was still in my dungarees by at that time, you know, watching those early bands. But then when I'd moved up to London and punk was happening and, and you just thought, well, okay, um, I remember that moment when I thought, uh, should I get a safety pin? <laughs> <laughs> now, now you're sitting there, you're into punk, and then now when do you decide, you know, you're going to put a band together? And I mean, because, you know, you guys became popular very fast. I mean, what was the whole process? I mean, did you already, were you playing an instrument or were you writing songs yet? Um, yeah, I'd, what I'd done was after seeing my brother's band, punk band and stuff, I went into went into my bedroom and got a Vox practice amp, some headphones and a guitar, and and learned to play and sing at the same time so that I could I could be a be a punk really. And I thought, well, I looked at them up the stage and I thought everybody has a guitar, and even if there was, I mean, there were singers, but I didn't really aspire to be just a singer or frontman. I just wanted a you know, all the people I liked, like, you know, David Byrne had this brilliant guitar, so all these people had great guitars, so I went and got one. And uh, my friend from, who was uh, Rob Stroud, he used to work in House of Wizard with me. We worked together really closely, and we were both juniors. And uh, we went to the to Tim Pan Alley to buy our, he bought a snare drum, and I bought a guitar. And then we used to go back to my, my house and just play, make stuff up. So songs were being developed just because they had to, because there was just Rob and I. There wasn't like other people. We didn't even know about getting a bass player or other people involved. We were just enjoying playing together. And um, so then punk turned into New Wave. Then New Wave turned into the... There was a Scar cultural wave that came over. So it was two-tone. So that was going on. But Rob was really more into Joy Division and monochrome set which I was really into as well, but that kind of stuff. So he 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 went off and uh, joined the Sex Gang Children, which was uh, pretty different, really, because I, I started Haircut 100 after after that. Um, so, but uh, we're still friends now, which is <laughs> which is amazing. Um, it was just great to meet up in London and talk about those old days of how punk just opened up the door to everybody's creativity and made it possible for everybody to 
you know, you wouldn't have any of these bands or any of the the colour that was added. It was it was brilliant before then. I mean, the seventies, just uh, you know, mid seventies music. I mean, in Britain, it had you know loads and loads of glam music and stuff, and it was it was colourful. And in America, you know, you have Steely Dan and a, a completely amazing, wonderful band um, making unique music and. But something happened with with punk. I don't know whether it did in America affect America in the same way, but it just really blew the uh, UK to smithereens, really. Well, I think for us, for punk in America, it didn't catch on as much, I think, just because it was... I don't know why. I mean, there was bands in you, but there wasn't the group. I mean, it may have been just... We were different. We were listening to, you know, there was Southern rock. There was there was so many different genres, and, and our country was so spread out that, you know, people down mm-hmm. south were listening to Southern rock. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. We were listening to the Springsteen things. People in California yeah. were listening to the Eagles and that kind of sound. So I think we really were so diverse, and to find the punk bands, you really people had to really look for them, like you said earlier, because it was in the, in the States, it was hard to find that scene. Mm. And I suppose even now, you've still got that division because there's still people in the south listening to that music and it's just never going to be affected at all uh so that's the that's the way it is and it's funny because you know now that's all gone i've seen and developed and moved into other things and gone through many other changes um now music's just really whatever you want it to be whatever you want whatever, you know i mean you, you don't let it affect you there's no massive cultural waves that affect everyone now i mean they're, they're kind of they kind of is I suppose in the charts, but that doesn't seem to have any effect on people's tastes really. Once you've developed what you like now, it seems to be that's that's what it is. I mean, you can find lots of forms of music uh, repulsive uh, to you. I mean, a lot of people found when I was younger they said, "You like jazz? You know what are you nuts? You know what kind of music's that?" Um, <laughs> So um, music can can do that. It can be quite quite divisive, as well as it can bring people together and do amazing things. I suppose it's just a part of humanity, really, that duality, where things, you know, like the internet, it can do stunning things, and it can also do horrible, uh, repulsive things. So. Right, and, and you're right, music brings people together. Like, like when you're banned, like, first of all, back when Haircut Hunt 100 was breaking it, how did you get the name? Um, well, uh, it was we just had a name every, pretty much every week. Just tried out new names, and in, in those days, obviously, you didn't have to buy every domain name and uh, <laughs> stick with it. <laughs> um, so it was great. You could just be, you could invent yourself every day if you wanted to. So. So we kind of did, and, and Haircut 100 was just one of those. It was I just said it at the, uh, we sort of used to have band meetings at the coffee table, which was basically Les Neems, Graham Jones, and myself sitting in my mum and dad's kitchen. And uh, just before we went out to the Three Tons uh, pub in, in, in Beckenham, because that's where we used to go to try and get girlfriends. Uh, so we used to take a new name with us. So we took Haircut 100, the new name uh, one day cause, and uh, took it to three times, tried it out and people just looked at us baffled when we said the name and just said, why? And uh, I think that reaction really resonated with us because 
you know, we thought it was it was like a, it fitted with the, our humour, our band humour. You know, to, for people to ask why we want to call that, it was it just it was perfect. So it just stuck. We just stuck on a one name, and and that was it. And it just seemed to. I think it's I think it's a good name. I mean, I'd, I'd like I'd like it to. It's I'd very like it catchy. It's you, <laughs> you never forget Haircut One Hundred. You know, you can say <laughs> you. It's not one of those things, and and it doesn't really make sense. What Haircut One Hundred? No. But but you listen to it and you go, oh yeah, Haircut One Hundred. And that's I think we need the names because there's so many names you listen and you go, either they're sometimes they're just too contrived, and you go, oh my god, are you joking me? But your name, it's yeah. just right. And for that time, like in the early '80s, it was perfect. It was like Haircut One Hundred, rolled off the tongue. Yeah, and that that's the stuff you get out of the subconscious that when you just say it, and it's just a, it just it, it it's got that that kind of surreal because it's forced. It can sound really pretentious, and and so that's a name. It's a, one of, probably one of the hardest things to come up with as a band. I mean, now, once you've got the name, though, you're, it's plain sailing. Now, yeah, you got the name, and now you're sitting there. You're playing. How do you end up getting a record deal? How long? Were you guys playing under the name, the moniker Hair Covered 100, till you signed with uh, Arista? Well, it, it was really quick because um, we couldn't get any gigs. Uh, we couldn't really, no agents were into us, uh, no publishers, no record companies, nothing. Uh, so it was a closed door. And I remember thinking, well, that's, this is, you know, this is rubbish, really. I'm not going to wait around for, for, for this. This is silly. So I thought, okay, I'll just walk into the NME because it was around the corner from where I used to work. Uh, and it was a powerful thing, the New Musical Express. So I just went, walked in. <laughs> the door was open and I went in and um, so I think it was Adrian Fields who said, can I help you? Expect it to be like this. It was just a big room with lots of desks. And so I went and sat at this guy's desk and uh, he said can I help you and I said oh I'm just um, you know I told him about my band and it was funny because I, I said Hecker 100 and he just sort of did that thing of like, looked puzzled um, but obviously did like the name and so from then on in the musical New Musical Express's minds there was a band called Hecker 100 it's just that Hecker 100 was just really three guys living above a flower shop in Gloucester Road, that was it. We were just mates and we played together. It wasn't like a serious put together band. We didn't we didn't actually have a drummer at that point. Um, so I just told him the names of the songs and it, 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 I think it just got more intriguing for him when I said, you know, Lemon Fire Brigade. And, um, and I, I said it like we were really a band. I was kind of imagining that we were the fire engines or something and we were we're really going places. I think he must have got quite excited about this. Anyway, I was doing it like I was a commercial artist, and I, you know, because that's what you had to do with commercial art. You had to take your your art around, and you had to sort of sell it. Really, you know, you you did a an idea for an ad, and you had to sell this ad, make it work like Mad Men. You had to make this thing work somehow. So there I was selling it to. And embellishing, you can't help embellishing when you're doing doing that stuff. And he said, where are you playing? And I said, well, we're playing at a place called the uh, Ski Club of Great Britain. And he kind of looked at me like, so you called Haircut 100, you've got songs like Lemon Fire Brigade and Milk Film and Blue Penguins and, and stuff. 
stuff. So, yeah, I don't think we have Bristol by then. I want to look at Ruby. And uh, and you're playing at the Ski Club of Great Britain. Okay, and you, you live in Gloucester Road in one room above a flower shop. Well, I'd like to come round, maybe, and just meet you. So he did. He brought a cameraman with him. We thought we were just... We didn't think this was an interview. We just thought we were just kind of chatting and having some pictures taken. Uh, uh, and then two weeks later, I think it was, there was a half a page in the New Mixel Express of, uh, about Haircut 100. And, and uh, <laughs> we, were, we were kind of like, oh, right, uh, wow, wow, wow. And from then on, we just we played again. We had to come up with more places because we just couldn't couldn't play anywhere nobody wouldn't have an agent or anything so we we went around the corner and got a, jo- uh, a we got a job we got a, a gig with the band called the Tropicanos uh, who then had the brass section and that sound the brass section ended up on favourite shirts being doing the brass so we that's the only gig we could get which was the local college so we played there and it it just was filled with people <laughs> That's the, that was the power of the music, New Musical Express at that point. It was, you know, here we were, we were a band. Uh, so we had to get it together really quickly. But the thing, the good thing is, is I'd been, I'd been inspired since punk and I'd been in my bedroom and I was doing it for ages and imagining one day I was going to be, you know, Andy Partridge of XTC and we're obviously going to be on Rock Goes to College. We're obviously going to be on Top of the Pops. It's just obvious. So I, I just believed it, and and uh, let's and Graham. Once we lived together, we believed it too. And uh, it was that thing where we used to say, "Well, what can we do?" And I said, "Oh, I'll pop into the enemy." Yeah, yeah, that'd be a good idea. But it wasn't a dumb thing. It just seemed to be the way that we did it. And I remember that day when I was I was at the New York Express. Uh, I was introduced to a guy called Nick Logan, who was starting a new magazine up called The Face. Uh, and he said, "Oh, you know." Have you got a picture? And I had loads of pictures because uh, I was really into that. Being a commercial artist, I was into the the way that we were going to look as well. So I had a portfolio with him and I gave him a picture. And uh, he put that in one of the first editions of The Face. So it was just really just being there, really, just being around and noticing that most of the music was happening around the corner from where I was working. Now, now, so you were around, and then you got to deal with Artist, Arista, and now, when you do that first album, when do you start making videos? Because, you know, I remember, like, girls going crazy over your video. I remember there was a guy in our high school that looked a little bit like you, and they'd be like, oh, oh, look, you know, that guy's so cute. He looks like the singer from Haircut 100. I remember that. So, the, I mean, it was weird, like, oh, wow, that the guy here? does... That- did that really happen here? I swear to God, yeah. Well, I mean, in my high school, because MTV was so big. How did, I mean, when you guys recorded your your first album, how long until you started doing videos, and you really hit the videos at the right time, and especially because your videos, I mean, I told someone you are going to be on my show, and they still remember the video of swinging, you know, you guys swinging huh. with the thing. But the videos were, were very impactful. From when you recorded the album, how long until you made the videos, and how long until you started getting very very popular well the the video was the first time that it was nothing to do with us in a way we were signed to record company because and we showed them that our all our ideas and all the artwork and 
everything was okay. You know, it was basically we just had a record company now. But this was something. This was the kind of new thing that was happening and making a video. So we'd obviously seen all these great videos up until then. So we wanted to do something fantastic, but we we're so busy at that particular point. We we're just playing live that we never knew what the video was going to be. So we just turned up at a studio one day, and there was a jungle. Uh, so <laughs> we didn't know what was going to go on. Uh, we we sort of like just thought this is this is this is a laugh. This is the kind of whole stuff. This is what being a pop star is, I suppose, isn't it? You turn up, you don't know what you're doing, and it's just a process of doing it. Um, so there was a rope, and the director said, "I want, would like you to swing from that rope." And I said, "What? Like, really? <laughs> you know, you can imagine I was a musician, and, and I've been in punk days." you know, pogoing around London and things, and suddenly I was told to get into a loincloth and swing from a rope. I was like, no, wait, I'm not doing that, you know. And uh, then there was somebody from, the, you know, just around and going, the artistic director, and going, oh, it'll be great, don't worry, this is going to be really good. And you thought, oh, okay, so, you know, you you get you get your loincloth on, and Les and Graham were, like, sniggering, and Mark was saying, you know, nice loincloth, Nick, you know. Um and then you'd see that Les was going to be dressed up as like in in um he was going to be boiled in this pot. He was going to be popped into this boiling pot of, of water. Uh, that was his role, and uh, everybody had their their role in it. And you just it was just it was silly, and we didn't know why it was happening, but it was happening. And then we saw the end result and thought, well, um, I don't understand that, but I suppose it's somebody's interpretation of us and. Uh, wouldn't have thought Love Plus One was about that. I thought it was more Northern Hemisphere, lakes, uh, some <laughs> kind of like Swiss, Swiss German, because my mum was called Anna and she was Swiss German. And it was, first of all, it was I went off to the Rhine without saying goodbye, because she went to school in Germany. Um, so I, I thought it was going to be like that. So pretty shocking that we turned up and there's a jungle. Uh, but we just went with it. Uh, so it looked like Echo 100 with Gretches, this band, uh, sort of semi-funk meets the Beatles uh, in a jungle. And that's how it sort of developed. And just by, you know, record companies getting involved in a really creative way because because then they were more naive. Uh, there was, you know, it was just more ideas that, that went on. There was, and, and it takes lots of people, little little adjustments and people in record companies to help that stuff happen as well. It's not just all about the song. You know, it's about the producer and it's about the engineer and it's about the person who says, oh, you know, I've got an idea. I think I see a jungle, personally, for the single. Didn't see it myself, you know. <laughs> so the band, none of the band thought, let's do a video in the jungle. So um, that's how it came about well now now what is it like for you then you know you guys you know all of a sudden your bands really you're having top 10 singles and you're getting really popular and you were a new a newer band that must be hard when you're young i mean how do you you take it all in because it's something that it's a, a time where you're young your life is changing you're on the top mm -hmm. of the charts everyone probably everyone probably wants to meet you you guys had a good look you all dressed nice you probably had you know young crowds chasing you what was it like for you at that point being a rock star because you were um yeah because it's not you don't know 
how to behave. You, you don't know what to do either. You you look around at others and you think, oh, well, they're doing it right, okay. Um, and you just got to get on stage and, and do that thing. So as a musician, it's brilliant because you've got your gigs are just filled out and there are events every time you play. So you're just getting better and better and better as a band. And so you're gelling together as a band because... Because we didn't, you know, it was Les Graham and I, we were mates. But um, Phil Blair and Mark um, came in later. So we were developing a relationship with them. We didn't really know each other too well. It was all happened so quickly. So we're getting together as, as a band and knowing how it worked. And it worked like a dream on stage. It absolutely, uh, it was just getting better. The, when we toured in America, it was just... And we had the brass section and stuff. It was Neil Sidwell and his brother and things. We just we just got so tight. We were like Tower of Power um, meets the Beatles. It was just uh, with a bit of Earth, Wind and Fire along the way. It was uh, with surreal lyrics, and it was just every night we're going out and and uh, playing it, and uh, and everywhere was was getting it. They were going, oh, I get this. Yeah, this isn't. Uh, this is. Uh, you guys are tight. Wow, this is amazing! And we we're developing bits of music in in between the set as well. And and I was kind of developing as a frontman because I I didn't know what to do. And sometimes I was putting down my guitar and and um, I had a kind of um, Dave Gahan moment, you know, when I thought my leg sort of raised up in the air and I kicked it out. I remember, and I just thought I thought, whoa, hold on a minute. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, oh! Am I going to turn into a frontman here? Um, because up until then, I'd you know Gretsch underneath my chin, quite high, and all the songs were sung from that that kind of George Harrison, John Lennon place, or David Byrne place, where you're you know where you are. You've got your guitar there, you've got your chords, and you're singing all the lyrics out and. Okay, I know my role in the band. This is good, but then when the guitar went down and the leg went up in the air, and there was a moment, but I didn't develop it. I don't know, still to this day don't know why I didn't turn. It was like I could have I could have had a Mick Jagger moment as well, but I didn't, and it just the guitar went back on. And then the the, the band came back from America and was was so good, but we were so knackered, and that's that's when we came back and we started to do the second album and. That's where the there was lots of pressures really for, from everyone. We're all pretty knackered, and and some just strange a, a series of strange things happened, and we fell apart. Now uh, it must have been more pressure on you because you did a majority of the songwriting, right? So that must be really hard. Um, actually, that's the easy bit. That's that's really that's the fun bit. Right? There's no pressure there. I must, I must say, I didn't have anybody saying write any singles because people didn't understand the singles anyway. They never really sounded like hits. They were just kind of, it was just odd, the, the music. It wasn't, I mean, there's no real chorus in Love Plus One in a way. I mean, a little bit, but it's just a series of of bits, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> what I mean is there was no kind of like, okay, you've got to come up with a hit record and so okay you go back and you sit in your studio and you go come up with some massive chorus about a girl um so this this wasn't so this was just go into the studio and be be creative um because what you do 
is commercial, it seems. Because I always felt like if you try to be anything, you try to be commercial, that's when you aren't. Like trying to be funny, trying to be cool, trying to be successful. You know, they all backfire. Uh, you can't tell people you're brilliant. You know, it's just a process of uh, showing, and you can't think that you're brilliant either. You just got to be brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, yeah, you're so you're so right. I, I see people post on Facebook all the time that they're brilliant, and I'm like, you can't tell. If, I'm the same way. Like, you can't tell people you're edgy because if you do, you're not edgy. Yeah, you know what I mean? exactly. <laughs> If you have to tell somebody you're, you're edgy, exactly. that's the least edgy thing ever. <laughs> exactly. So, so when you broke up, were you, were you depressed? Were you bummed that you broke up? But you you thought you wanted to go solo. I mean, what's it like? Because you guys were on top of the world, and then you know, and you you were you know you were the you wrote the songs, and you were considered the front man, and you probably wanted to go solo. But was it a hard adjustment period when you broke up? Did you go through a downtime and then? But know that you were going to be able to go solo and be, things would be okay. Um, I did go through a downtime because uh, I, I, I started to I started to really uh, uh, afterwards when when it when it was all when I felt like I'd lost my friends. Um, that was the, that was the darkest time really um, because these were the my mates, my best friends. Uh, so. When they had kind of completely fallen out, uh, there was that was the darkest moment really, um, and I didn't want to really do the music. band. if I thought if I can't be in the, my own, have my own band, and they don't want me to be in in the band anymore, and it was, you know, I didn't want to be around them because there was so much animosity flying around. Um, that was that was the darkest time. So I, I thought. I wanted to leave the music world because I just thought, okay, I've got into this. This has happened, and maybe I just need some time, time out of it. Which is, you know, we've both, uh, we've all, we've all realised that time out of it would have been our, you know, somebody calling time out would have definitely been, you know, anybody coming along and just getting us all together would have been good. But there wasn't that person. There was people that tried, including my father, um, including lots of the band's fathers. <laughs> And mothers and everybody, everybody trying to advise us on, on stuff. And, but it just seemed that it wasn't going to happen. So I think that was my darkest time. And, but I was in, um, I, was, I, I really wanted to develop uh, with the second Hecker album. And that was really it was the musical separation there because uh, there was a kind of, do you want to stay funk or do you want to go off and do something else? And sort of music was definitely developing around that time, 1983. There was so much new music coming out. I mean, there was the electronic thing. There was, you know, ABC were doing orchestral things. There was, it, there was so much going on and they were, they were meeting. But, but funk was just really the cultural wave that we'd come in on uh, and I felt like we would needed to develop so that's why I wanted it to be more more colourful so that's why I wanted to work with Jeff Emmerich and um, I just couldn't get the band into Jeff Emmerich uh, so that's why I ended up making 
uh, North America uh, with Jeff Emmerich and then then just thinking, well, do I have another band or what do I what do? I do? And, and I just thought, I can't, I want another band, you know. So it just ended up by default being being uh, just going out of my, my name, which I found myself as a solo artist, which was the something I'd never aspired to doing. And still don't to this, to this day, I still prefer being in bands when I go out and play, you know, even if I have, I have a band, I'm, we're a band, even if, even if it's just for one tour, it's a band. And then, uh, so, I mean, that's what I'm developing at the, mo- at the moment so that I can do the next album as a band. Now, uh, now you, you did a bunch of solo albums and, you know, and they, they had some good success and, and now the latest one, Woodland Echoes, which, as I said, I listened to, I really enjoyed. How did that come about, and how long in the making has this band been, has this album been? I mean, you did solo albums, but did you step away from the business for a while, didn't to raise your kids and stuff like that? Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it sounds very John Lennon. I'd, I'd like it to be that way, but I, I didn't have John Lennon's um, money, so <laughs> I couldn't really, I could step away. But I, in 1998, uh, I was on Creation Records. Britpop had just been around, and uh, that was a that was a really good, great, great time for music in the UK again. Um, so, but then at the end of at the end of the year, uh, it looked like guitar music was taking a turn for the worse. And uh, you know, Alan McGee said it on on quite clearly. He said just guitar music's dead, you know. And he'd signed Oasis kind of thing. So. Um, and creation just was disbanding, really. So uh, I was not on creation anymore, and uh, it coincided with my mum becoming very, very ill. She had emphysema, and so that was suddenly a, a shock. So this was all gearing towards the end of. There was always kind of things that happened towards the end of decades. You know, the build-up of. Uh, you know, it was like like there's a drama coming. It was like Watership Down, you know, where there's there's some humans coming right. <laughs> over the hills. <laughs> um, better better watch out. So it looked like music was changing ag- again, uh, and Mum was dying, and my my marriage had end- ended, and so there was lots of things happening, and they all happened around the same week. It was like a load of buses arriving at the bus stop all at the same time and um and it just sent me over the edge really into i thought was going to be a horrendous place but it it actually had the opposite effect where it was just this beautiful peaceful peaceful moment in 1930th of april 1998 it was uh, in the morning and uh the, everything just became clear completely clear um, and I didn't even think about the music after music business after that. I didn't have a record deal or a publishing deal or or anything. But I was blissfully happy, and um, and I was yeah, I was bringing up uh, my kids, and I was just kind of hardly doing. It it just had stopped really for the. For myself, it just seems. Um, I don't think I could have got a record deal at that particular time. Uh, much as you try, you know, 
it's strange because sometimes people think, um, what are they doing? And it takes a lot. It did take a lot then to keep getting record deals. You know, if you got let go by a record company, you'd have to start it all again, this process of getting interest, which is, which is what changed in mid-2000s because of the internet. So, you know, MySpace happened and, and things, and, and so you could just be creative and you didn't need to sign to a record company. You could just start making music. And then that developed into the whole internet thing where for an, internet, for an independent artist, you can just make albums and release them. And so it's all back round, so I don't need the... I don't need a record company now. I mean, I am a record company, Gladsome Hawk. That's the record company. So you can be your own independent artist now and just make the music. And you, you can make just make music. So that's what I've just done. I've just made an album and just thought, wow. And, and it's got well received. So you think, oh, I think I'll do another one then. And I went to the music shop yesterday and bought an SG and a Marshall. <laughs> uh, so I've like been in my room today just rocking out and thinking I think the next album's going to be quite quite rock <laughs> now, now, now when did you start recording Woodland Echoes when did you start getting the ideas for the song because it's, it's got some different it's got a little bit folky it's, it's got different sounds on it which that's what I like mm. about it you know as I said I was drinking my coffee this morning I was listening I was like I, it's one of those things that keeps your attention but when did you start developing the sound for it and did you have any idea which direction that sound was going to go or were you just saying I'm taking one song at a time uh, no, I was I was sharing music on MySpace and other social media, and but just sharing it. And I really like the instantness of sharing stuff. Uh, but um, quite a few people just su- suggested doing it properly because uh, I was sharing doodles and things like musical doodles. Like I started to write live and things on online, and really enjoying that. So you or you'd get up and just improvise a song and then share it. But in about two thousand seven. There was a moment when uh, my son set me up with a microphone and logic in, in my room and uh, a few other things. And I had a piano and, and other stuff. And, and there was this moment when I thought, ah, oh, I'm going to develop this song. And it was, it was The Forest of Love, which, is, which made it onto the album. And um, so I'd sing these songs, finish, finish them off, and then just think, OK, I'll colour them in properly. So then I started to do songs and then just colour them in. So I had no... I would just do songs. I think because it it was over quite a long period, because I would then have to go out and play live to get some more money, to buy some more equipment and just, you know, live. So I'd go out and play live. uh, And then that would bring in... And then I'd be able to continue on stuff. And and after a point, maybe... It seemed to be just taking a long time. uh, And I, I think that made... It worked out well because that meant that by the you know by the time you'd spent three years, you'd also your musical taste just completely changed. Um, there's something about doing an album all at once. It's very focused and it's it's what you're into at that particular time. Like the album I did on Creation, the Apple Bed, is very much focused on what it was. But had it been recorded over say ten years, it would probably sound you know more have a lot more varied music on it so I think that's why Woodland Echoes has that because it's it's really been made over a 10 year period and working with my son and us grabbing time when we could because he was off doing stuff and 
I was off doing stuff, and so this was us getting together and and doing it. And then I came over to America um, to to live with my fiance and her parents moved from Minnesota down to Florida and we were seeing them and my friend Ian who I'd worked on kite with had moved to Key West so I went to visit him and we started recording together and his uh, on his got like a houseboat uh, with a studio in one of the rooms uh, which most most musicians have really we all have a room where we do stuff uh, so we did a mountaintop which was one of the songs there, um, which don't know why it came out that way. It was probably something to do with driving on the way there and just soaking up the country and things. But I never thought I'd do anything to do with kind of country music at all. So that was the one we started with, and it ended up having fiddle on it, which was uh, a, a you know. Ian knew from bands that he'd that gone down to Key West to play because there's quite a, a strong country feel as well as blues. And then I worked with lots of local blues musicians as well uh, on on the album. And so it had a had a feel. So it had two different feels. So there's the stuff I did with my son, the stuff I did with my own on my by myself in my sort of room that he's taken out with some equipment, which is kind of nature based and the connection with nature because nature was always just outside the window. And literally, sometimes I'd put the phone out there and re just record nature, which made it onto the album too. And then there was this other you know, country, southern rock thing from Key West that came in at one point. And then there's just your musical taste anyway, which a bit of jazz appeared on there, and that's just because jazz is in my blood, really, uh, from my family. So it's a really just a... a tiptoe through the tulips of different styles of music and different times and 10 years of my life really put into onto an album and the, the title came at the end when it just seemed to be obvious that it was called Woodland Echoes because it was a little tune that Sarah, my fiance, always had on a computer which has got more scratches on it than anything and it's probably from about 1908. 1908 and it's uh, it's just got this kind of northern hemisphere sound about it and it's a flute and it sounds like a cuckoo bird it just seems to be this whole album just seems to be pointing its way north like to the lake you know to Lake Louisa which I haven't been to okay. yet but I went and bought a postcard in a local shop for a dollar and this postcard seemed to say more about the album than anything and it was just a post simple postcard and a, a scene which summed up the record and that even though I'm not in the music business as such there was still pressure from the people that were going to plug it who are well you can't have a picture of a postcard you can't have your face so I fought really hard to not have a picture of myself and have a postcard on the front <laughs> Of the album, really, but I, that's what you can do when you're an independent artist. You can you can do that. You can you can choose that. I mean, it's and you know that it's not self sabotage. You know that it's the essence of who you are and what you really want to do. And and as an artist, you're uncompromising, and that's that's what it is. 
Now, as an artist, when you when you did the track lineup, because I've always been, I've talked to a lot of musicians on my show about this, and I always grew up, you know, I really get into the track lineup, you know, the songs. When you when you're sitting there, and you said you have so many different influences, and it took ten years of your life, so we go through different times. When you have different influences, how did you decide to line up the tracks? Because they all play. When you're listening to it, it all formulates well. And but you know that's a, that's sort of a risky move. When if there's a bunch of different kinds of music, you might lose someone. But you're you did it you did it right. How did you come up with the the, the order of the songs? Well, I recorded twenty five songs, and then I picked twelve. Uh, it was almost like having twenty five chapters of a book. And, and then I had to edit because I felt like editing was a really vital ingredient in, in this in the making of this album. And I had time to edit. It, it wasn't, and I had perspective because I could step back many times and say, is this right? But right at, right at the end, it was, it was literally the 12 that went together. And I had, I had quite a bit of rock, actually, and it just did, tipped it. It just tipped it in the wrong direction. Um, and I've, I've got a love of rock, and so maybe the next time I just thought I'll, I'll keep that for future. But this was the story that was told. Uh, these cha- twelve chapters seemed to just even even the instrumental on there. You know, I I had much better songs, but they just didn't fit with the story. This just seemed to be the story of Woodland Echoes and the story of of Sarah and I, and my connection with nature and our connection. Um, through nature to romantic love and through, you know, with that strong connection of nature. It was like I had that connection with nature, but I'd never found a connection romantically. So in that way, I mean, I thought I had, but until I had that connection, that was really powerful. Um, And so I wanted to reflect that. And these were the 12 songs that did, it seemed, uh, they went they went together and they just they just flowed and sometimes even with the mixing uh, Chris Sheldon who mixed it who I had saved up for <laughs> who uh, he he mixed he's, he's a wonderful man and uh, you know he he mixed uh, the Apple Bed too and uh, he works really well with Ian Shaw who I'd recorded with as well and we we all know each other and in fact it was Ian that introduced me to Chris. In fact, Ian introduced me to lots of people. It was Alan McGee and everything, because you know he's a bit of a kingpin in the, in in lots of people's musical careers, I think. Uh, so it was it was lovely to um, to go to him, and sometimes I, I right at the end, I just because I thought I can't get them all mixed. I you know haven't got the budget for that. So I I would I said to Chris, you know, what do you think? at the end so it was nice to involve Chris in, in that creative process and, of picking what should be mixed I couldn't mix all 25 so that was part of the creative process and you know that above it all there is something that is bringing this album together the same thing that makes trees uh, grass and chooses the colour of a wall or the name of a band or the name of your boat or what speaker you want to buy, or what guitar you want to get, or what lady you fall in love with, man you fall in love with, everything. And so you just trusted that this kind of uh, 
natural process is at hand. And uh, this, because when you stand back and you look at a tree, you just think, well, well, you know, that's pretty good. And, you know, I couldn't make that. Uh, but, you know, you can, uh, you can at least aspire to be part of the process of how the tree was made. So that's, that's, my, that's it with Woodland Echoes. It's my attempt at connecting with nature. Now you're like, gonna you're gonna go on tour with uh, that Wooden Echo store, but before that you're gonna play two shows in LA, January 26th and January 27th. Um, on those shows, when it's the 80s weekend, are you gonna be playing a mixture of Haircut 100 stuff and and Wooden Echoes, or how are you gonna do that? No, it's it's pure nostalgia trip. I'm just gonna be playing the old songs that uh, helped make Wooden Echoes. But uh, I would I would imagine I've I've learnt that you know you can't go along to these things and play new stuff because it's not the environment. I did it once or twice and it, I'm not going to do it again. And so it's completely give people what they come have come along for. Um, and when I go and play my own, not that this is my own gig, but if I play in a, well I'm planning to play in LA, um, and if I play it somewhere like I don't know anywhere. I would be playing everything, you know. It's, it's mainly the new stuff, and then going back, rather than back and then going forward. Is so, is that what you'll do with the Woodland Echo tours? I saw you have a lot of dates over in England, in starting in May. Is that what you're going to do then? You're going to play pretty much the album to its entirety, and then spice and throw some of the haircut stuff in there. Um, yeah, it's going to be um, not not all of. Woodland Echoes, going to be mostly Woodland Echoes, then with lots of other solo stuff, like from Monday to Sunday, songs like Kite, and uh, songs like Whistle Down the Wind, and Take That Situation and things, and and then it's going to be, you know, a batch of haircuts, 100 songs, which is, you know, I, I always really enjoy them. <laughs> yeah. how, do you, how are you going to put your band together for that when you tour? Um, well, I've been touring for a while with the same band, so it's really nice to know that you know they know most of the set and they know most of the new songs as well because they've all had the album and things. We played them a few times, so I'm going to go over there in, in April and come here in, in America at the moment. So I'm going to go over there and start rehearsing. And now, off the Woodland Echoes, what what is your uh, what would you say is your favorite song off the new album? Oh. I do, if I listen to it, I suppose, I like listening to Beautiful Morning just because, um, just because I, I felt like I, it took four goes, that song, to get Beautiful Morning. I had four different songs called Beautiful Morning, and I really liked the lyrics, and I liked the title, but I felt like I hadn't got captured the essence of A Beautiful Morning, and I kept doing it again and again, and... This was one where I was just sitting by the window in a, we had a little cottage in a place called Stoke Row by a little pub uh, where I used to hear quite a few bands, quite a few of the bands on a Friday and Saturday night. In fact, I heard uh, John Otway was one of them and I bumped into John Otway up at the BBC the other day and I said, I've heard you, but I haven't seen you. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I must 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 do that, and we, you know, so he was, he was a lovely chap, and we ended up having a little uh, chat, and um, I've been a bit of a fan for a long while, so I was a bit nervous, but 
you know, that's always healthy. And then, um, anyway, back to the room. So I was sitting there, and it was nice and quiet, but just some birds hung out the window, and it was spring. And I played, I detuned the guitar down a tone, and I just played a C, an A minor, and then a, a D. Really normal, normal chords, but it was the way I was playing them. I was just kind of gently, it was gently pulsating in the, in the, in the kind of sweet afternoon breeze through the window and I thought ah okay I put, and I put on a little rhythm that was along with the acoustic and I was just playing it over and over and the lyrics to Beautiful Morning just popped into my head uh, when the morning sun arrives like a beacon from the sky and I was off I thought ah that song that song just and it was like a, a gentle unfolding of a morning. And so I recorded it, and that was the vocal and the guitar that ended up being on the album. It was just coloured in by the wonderful Phil Taylor and myself. That's awesome. So if I listen to it again, I'll uh, I'll drink my coffee, especially to that tune. So. Uh. <laughs> so I want, I, you know, Nick. I want to really thank you for coming on, and uh, it's it's, it's uh, glad to have you back making music again. And I know you're on Twitter. You're at, at Nick Hayward, and it's H N I C K. Of course, people H E Y W A R D, and that's also your website. And they can get all their information uh, on your website. Yeah. Uh, what's going on, right? So okay, so and then now you're on. Are you on Instagram too? Yeah, Instagram. I love Instagram. I post. I love photography and love Instagram. I okay. think it's a really sweet place. Is that Nick Hayward also? Nick Hayward. Same. I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go follow him. Go listen to his old music, Haircut One Hundred, because it's fun. It's great music, and it's, and he is. It's got some good sound. I, I was listening to that also. I was listening to that earlier today too. I love this Amazon unlimited music with echo because i can just yell songs and albums in and they play so people follow him follow nick hayward follow him on twitter go by his i'm at cooper talk that's at cooper talk go to my website coopertalk.net there's god 668 episodes up there you can email me cooper at coopertalk.net don't forget my other project uh when i had my health problem a few years ago i wrote that cookbook it's 120 low sodium recipes for one, no pictures to intimidate you, no long lists of ingredients. I cook with a lot of ingredients. I take a lot of pictures, but I've been cooking for a long time. When I got out of the hospital, I wrote this book. It's called Stop the Salt. You can go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it, and I'll sign it for you. Or you can go to Amazon.com and get it there. But if you get it from me, I make more money. So people, follow Nick. Go follow his Instagram because I can tell I'm going to follow him right now because I bet he's a photographer. So I, I love the good photography and even my photo my photos look good with his cell phone. So people follow him. Follow <laughs> me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>